I'm Eugene Kim. And I'm Marilyn Delore. We are the co-directors of the Tracy Seeley Center for Teaching Excellence. And this is the first official episode of our new podcast. Hooray! So, Marilyn, tell us about how it came to be that we were talking with our guest for this podcast episode. Back in April, as I was finishing up teaching my spring class online and lots of faculty were starting to think ahead to fall semester and worry and wonder about what teaching modalities were going to be like. I was texting with my good friend, Joan Faber McAllister. We went to grad school together and uh, she teaches at Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa, which is actually my alma mater. And Joan has been on sabbatical this last year working on her research and I said, oh, gosh, what if we have to teach online or hybrid or I don't know what in the fall? And she texted back and she said, you know what? I I would actually like that. I would love to teach all my classes online. And I thought... I thought to myself, what are you crazy? I mean, I know Joan. I've I've been a guest in her classroom. She's uh, come to USF as a Davies scholar and lecturer, and she's taught in our classrooms here. And she is a master of the, you know, critical, in-depth, small seminar, larger humanities discussion-based class. I've seen her in action, and she's great. And so it really surprised me that she spoke highly of teaching online courses. Yeah. So she's yeah, so she's really one of those classroom people. You've seen her in action in the classroom. You know that she kind of like has the students wrapped around her finger and all that. So you were surprised that she was the one saying, "Oh, I'm so excited about teaching online." Yeah. Well, well, we were just texting and I said, "Really? What? Explain. What do you mean? What what's so great about teaching online?" And she said, "Oh, there are all kinds of things that you can do." online that you can't do in a regular classroom. And she took this very um, uh, kind of affordance or opportunity-based approach to thinking about it, which, again, surprised me, threw me for a loop. But it got me thinking about how I needed to shift my mindset from angst and frustration over trying to take my regular classes and squish them into this online box or tool, but instead... um, see this moment as as an opportunity for for reinvention. Okay. So so you got to talk with her. My name is Joan Faber McAllister. I'm a professor of communication studies. Uh, I teach at Drake University. I also taught at the University of Iowa. Um, and the University of Iowa is where I first started developing some online teaching. Actually develop helped develop uh, the first online public speaking class for University of Iowa, which was a unique challenge. Joan has been teaching online for quite some time. I've been teaching online for more than 12 years, maybe 12, 13, 14 years. I started teaching online because I wanted to offer courses in the summer when most of my students are not nearby or on campus or oftentimes not even in the U.S. And I was frustrated with also for certain activities and events and material I wanted to present, it was frustrating to try to work within the classroom time and the classroom spaces. 
all of my courses have online components. All of them do. And she teaches a lot of online courses. Suburbia and Contemporary American Film, Visual Rhetoric, my Imaging the City Urban Photography course, my American Dreams Seminar, Rhetoric and Social Change, my Aesthetics of Everyday Life course. I also have several other classes that I really would like to teach online. My Home, Dwelling and Belonging class, um, my Rhetorics of Space and Place class. Both of those I think would be better outside the conventional classroom. And then additional courses that would probably be great online would be my rhetorical criticism, my rhetorics of the American family, and even my public speaking course, I would really like to try an online version. Wow, that is a lot. So I'm wondering if you can tell me more about how the design process for an online course differs from a standard course and what are some of those um, new and different opportunities that are available to you with the online platform? I never start from what will be lost. Um, instead, I try to explore what we're gonna gain by getting out of a campus room and a set class period. So I always think about things that I've always really wanted to do that I couldn't do in the classroom because they're not there in the classroom or they consume too much classroom time, but they're really productive for the content and the skills that that particular course is after. So like watching films takes a tremendous amount of class time. Uh, and it's also really hard to schedule. Listening to student presentations, students getting you know the microphone for extended periods of time is something that's really hard to do in a set class period. Um, applying knowledge or exploring assignments outside the classroom, you know, those things are really important for a lot of my classes, but they also pose logistical problems that are so much easier online. So I used to have to coordinate with students to schedule evening film screenings. I used to have to get insurance and vehicle approval for field trips. I used to have to really dramatically limit student stage time or mic time for classroom settings. And it's so much easier when students can work from other places with their own schedule and their own time. So if I want students to reflect on and record their encounters with architecture or music or public memory or belonging or feelings or relationships, it's a lot better um, if they're not just sitting in the same room staring at the same whiteboard in the middle of the day. And I'll give you an example. My urban photography students, I used to always teach that class in January over our J term. They were all stuck in Des Moines, Iowa in January, photographing like the same frozen parking lot, hoping that they had a new angle that some other student didn't get. 50 different shades of gray. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, sometimes it's literally hazardous, you know, um, you know, they're like freezing their hands off sub zero temperatures, poor things wandering around campus trying to find an interesting frozen plant to photograph. But now they send photographs from wherever they are, wherever they live, wherever they're traveling. So they get to pick places that they love, or they have strong feelings about or that they find really interesting. And then that makes the class better for all of us just the variety. Um, and so it's really exciting to have people, you know, sending photographs from India or, you know, like wherever they happen to be, um, instead of just the same campus um, in the middle of January in Iowa. 
I think it's neat how she thinks of online teaching as an opportunity for gain by broadening both the class time and the classroom space. Yeah. The conversation with her really made me kind of think more expansively um, along many lines. But, you know, here she's talking about time and space, right? So teaching online or teaching remotely um, allows time to expand in a different way. I mean, I've often felt this in actual classrooms, right? The class starts at one o'clock and has to end at exactly 2.05. And that's hard to frame your conversation or, you know, oftentimes it spills over and short. So this idea of time constraints no longer binding you in the same way um, is, is liberating, right? And then students, wherever they are, will also have greater control in terms of choosing um, when they can do certain parts of the course and when they can engage with one another. Some students are early birds. I think probably a lot more students are night owls up doing work at various times. And Joan is also talking here about um, an expansive sense of thinking about space, that the physical space of the classroom is expanded beyond those four walls, right? And she's thinking about students um, going out into their immediate environment and the world and documenting and observing. Out into the parking lot. (laughs) Yeah. The frozen... Iowan parking lot becomes just part of the class now, the, the space benefit that, that you were mentioning. So then students go off on their own, um, you know, in this expanded time and their expanded space, but then how do they bring it back, right? So do they have to try to discuss all of their experiences in a Zoom meeting, like synchronously, or do they have to do the discussion board thing? Yeah, I asked Joan about that. Um, I think some of the classes she was talking about were predominantly asynchronous, fully online courses. So she made a lot of use of discussion boards, but in a much more robust and interesting way than I have ever tried to use it. Um, I think for sure, if you're doing synchronous meetings with your students, you can bring, um, students can bring back contributions to share and discussion. But Joan also really got me thinking about enabling students to use different kinds of media and different kinds of contributions on discussion boards, right? And there's other platforms in addition to Canvas discussion boards, Slack or Piazza. I know our colleagues here at USF are using a range of those things. And so students don't necessarily have to have just an expository um three paragraph response to a reading, but they might engage with each other. They might include um, an image or a sound file or um, pose a question or offer a quote. So as long as they're engaging and connecting in some way, that's an affordance of the online platform, right? And that students can kind of wait for that moment of inspiration too. I know that not everyone is good at thinking on their feet or offering the brilliant comment at the perfectly timed moment in synchronous discussion. But if you're thinking about something on your own time and have a couple days or a week to offer a contribution asynchronously on a discussion board or something like that, then, oh, you can have that time to kind of mull over ideas and come up with those insights and then offer them when they come. 
Discussion boards can work. That's Joan Faber McAllister again. Only if there's a variety of ways to share on a discussion board and different mediums. Like sometimes letting students, you know, students who are more visual share something visual or share something oral or sonic um, or do different kinds of writing. Because, of course, I mean, one of the problems with having everybody sitting and typing, um, and that's how we're evaluating their engagement, is that some students are more familiar or comfortable with their writing and with that type of writing. So I like to have a, diff a lot of different types of writing, you know, informal writing, um, back and forth, posing a question, and things like that. Um, but the truth is that the classroom setting has always favored certain students who are comfortable with that speed and setting for oral communication, which, you know, is a big disadvantage for students who have social anxiety or feel excluded for other reasons or have difficulty, you know, accessing the classroom. I mean, online discussions are not the same. There's no easy flow of, you know, offer and response, insight and question. Uh, and they will uh, disadvantage certain students, but they will also advantage other students. I appreciate that. I mean, it sounds like she's allowing students to engage in the class using uh, different modes of communication to uh, accommodate for different strengths and preferences and learning styles. But... What would you say in response to a professor who says that learning or at least getting practice in a particular mode of communication is important, even if they're uncomfortable with it, right? So for example, um, lawyers need to be able to think on their feet. They have to make their case orally under pressure. So should we allow law students to say, well, I don't really participate best or communicate best orally. So I'd like to opt out of the oral Socratic discussion uh, just because it's uncomfortable for them or not their preferred mode of communication. Is Jones suggesting that we should accommodate students' preferences along those lines? I don't think Joan is saying that exactly. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think her, her idea of let's give students a wide range of modalities to participate in the class necessarily means that they always get to choose, right? So, oh, I want to only record audio reflections, or I want to only put visual texts up there, right? I, th I think it could be interesting, actually, for students to be required to try one of many modes once, right? So they have to do one of each and then can maybe have some choices. And I think I think that those options that Joan was talking about were um, discussion board, classroom participation, not necessarily final assignments. So I can anticipate that, you know, if you still need to teach writing an academic paper or a legal brief or teach um, an argumentative speech or a performance of some kind, that those final assignments would still be largely the same, but you might think about different smaller assignments leading up to those that might um, open up the range of opportunities for students. But if we want students to develop presentation skills or writing skills, don't we want them to practice those skills throughout the class and not just on the final assignment? So it's true that sometimes you really do want students to engage in a particular way and practice that specific mode of engagement, oral argumentation or, or a certain um, type of academic writing. But also, 
A lot of times, or maybe even most of the times, the primary learning objective for that course might not be that mode of engagement itself, right? So in a class discussion about a book, for instance, the point is to really understand the key themes or ideas or concepts in the book, not necessarily to to write it up in a particular way or practice oral delivery skills. So you can certainly try to do both at the same time, but there's no reason they have to be a package deal where you can only contribute to the engagement of the book if you also happen to be able to speak well on it orally or write a certain kind of form. Okay, so discussion boards or other online engagement forums can work despite the less than perfect experiences that many of us have had with them before. Right. If, if you can do them in a varied way, and if the content that's being produced there is taken very seriously as important, um, substantial content in the course, like that's as important as assigned readings, like what people are writing or saying, or the, you know, connection, personal or visual or whatever connections they're making to the course. Um, they're valued. And so that has to show up somewhere in like what kind of work students are getting credit for. Um, and so, you know, I try to think about that much as we do in a conventional classroom where, you know, you say, oh, I want students to ask questions, but, or I want students to participate in discussion, but if they don't get credit for doing that, and if I don't vary how the discussion takes place, it's just going to be the same few people who, you know, really enjoy hearing themselves, you know, be classroom leaders. And, you know, it doesn't provide the kind of variety and diversity that I like to see in, you know, in my classroom discussion. So besides designing discussion boards thoughtfully to ensure student engagement, what other things do you need to watch out for when teaching an online course? Um, I would say also for me as an instructor, um, and what I things I worry about that maybe I worry about more than students do explaining assignments and answering questions is also very challenging and that you know when I can't talk and talk and talk and answer their questions and look at examples and so forth face to face um, I have to change how I approach it but I don't want to change and this is a important piece of advice I would give people. I would say don't change your way of explaining or clarifying assignments by spending hours and hours producing reams of paper and really, really long detailed explanations of assignment, you know, 10 page assignment prompt or 10 page syllabi even. Um, I think it's an opportunity to shift you into a different mode of accountability and investment and illustration. So showing up for students is more about preparation and engagement than physical presence. And um, clarifying or instruction for me is more about different modes of illustrating things than it is just producing tons and tons of detailed prose that then makes me cranky that they didn't read it carefully because it's very boring and overwhelming. Um, I would rather do something like collect examples that students can view themselves. And I try to, like previous assignments, I try to ask students, you know, can I use this example and take your name off it? And 
provide more than one and have you know several that are very different or have students be generating the examples themselves in a new course by breaking down big assignments into like um, the process and steps or stages that involve um, peer feedback, you know, laying out ideas and refining them so that like I'm much more likely online to do things by, you know, like start with throwing their ideas out for an assignment and then doing an outline and having people respond to that and then doing a partial draft, even for like a short paper or, you know, a pretty simple project because we don't have the opportunity to talk through it face to face. I want to build in that process for them where like, okay, you, you had the idea and then you slept on it. And then two people said, Hey, this is a great idea, but what about this? Or, you know, so that that is built in. Um, and I think that is really more helpful examples and smaller assignments with the opportunity for feedback is more helpful than, you know, a 10 page super detailed prompt saying exactly what points will be deducted or added for this or that minor thing. Um, that to me is not the best way to deal with moving to online. What are some downsides or challenges for you in online teaching? There are, you know, access issues, and this is one of the equity issues that's coming up a lot with, you know, online education. But I also feel like those kinds of challenges, financial challenges, technological challenges, are challenges that institutions have to grapple with. So we can't have instructors like running interference on those problems. When those problems exist, they need to be taken to the institution and the institution needs to work on those problems. Um, which doesn't mean I don't, you know, try to help, you know, accommodate students in many, many ways. But I also want my institution to be accountable for addressing those needs. Um, it is so that aside, like, can they get online? Um, do they have the equipment? Um, you know, I have to think about other issues of equity. You know, do I have a variety of modes of communication or modes of engagement or types of skills that we're building and measuring that, um, you know, there's enough of a variety? that, you know, different students can excel at different points. It can be also very hard to get the students to engage each other and connect with each other. Um, and so the only way to do that, I have to work really hard not to dominate discussion. Um, and that can happen online just as well as it can happen in the classroom where you're the answer person who just provides the right response. Um, I have to take seriously an online engagement, online conversations that um, their perspectives and takes are leading the way. Their responses to each other are um, leading the way. But then I have to facilitate to kind of redirect and get us back to, you know, what the course is trying to do. I have to monitor you know, the best side of online communication between students is that they can actually form connections with people they wouldn't have connected with in person. Just because of like where they choose to sit or, you know, like visual markers of identity or affinity or whatever, 
there can be connections across, you know, age and um, life experience and, you know, a lot of other boundaries. Um, but then, of course, the downside of online communication, as we know, is that sometimes people are less accountable to their own utterances um, when they're not looking at an actual human being in front of them. And so, you know, I have to monitor, um, is there conflict and disrespect and tensions? And so that's something that if that's happening, I, you know, need to find a way to reinvest them in their own experience of the class and how the contributions they make will shape the kind of encounter they get to have in there and the kind of conversation they'll get to have. So we sometimes have to have discussions about when you're shutting people down, when you're excluding certain points of view, you're basically just depriving yourself of a richer discussion. Um, and so, you know, that's something that I try to get them invested in it. So they realize the quality of discussion is something that, you know, they get to shape, but then they also get to reap the benefits of it. Absolutely. I mean, I know plenty of my colleagues here who in sort of regular on the ground teaching, right, are, are very um, careful and intentional about sort of setting community norms collectively in the first week of classes, right? And I'm just wondering if that needs to happen even more deeply or, or intensively in the online context. Yeah. And, I, you know, I often find like that the best way to handle some of these really complicated and difficult pedagogical decisions is to make your pedagogy transparent and take it to the students. So like when you're wrestling with, you know, how do we not have trolling in this class? Um, it's better to, instead of like, assuming I have a bunch of trolls and trying to build in ways to like catch and punish them, I just take that to the whole class. So yeah, y'all have probably had some negative experiences online. What were your worst experiences? How were you ever to, able to turn those into good experiences? What kinds of guidelines or rules do you think we should have as a group that's you know, communicating with each other? I mean, I try to involve them in that process. I sort of let them know, okay, here's a concern I have as an instructor. Here's what I want my course to do provided it's not some technical thing from my discipline that I can't expect them to know about. Um, like, how am I going to get you to understand this method that's so hard or this theory that's so hard? When it has to do with other things like dynamics and how to value student work and how to value student perspectives, I take it to them a lot of times and have them generate a discussion or process or even project around that, that they get credit for. So it's not just you know, them doing my work, you know, but that counts. Um, and often, you know, then they've made a certain kind of commitment to each other. And as you know, when a student says or does something inflammatory or hurtful in the classroom, it's almost always better if their peers respond and engage them than if the authority figure, you know, shuts them down, censors them, you know, does that steps in between or 
uh, imposes in the conversation. Not that, I mean, you have to do that sometimes, right? Um, but it can be done in a way that acknowledges that you're in a, you know, in a group with a bunch of other smart people who also have thoughts and ideas and reactions and find a gentle way to have a conversation about, you know, those topics. So like a sideways, we're like, how can we engage around this super touchy topic right now? What are ideas for what kinds of expectations or goals we should have? That kind of thing where it's not, you know, how do we tell Neil that that was a totally racist thing to say? You know, like, you know, like inviting them in the conversation. So kind of building from that, I wonder if you want to say more about fostering community in an online course? I think a few different things. One is to have, you know, sincerely and not just a lot of kind of surface or lip service kind of um, approach to, you know, everybody's valued and their views matter. Like having people find ways to recognize and reward the really different skills that people bring to a class and so um, they become, they re begin to rely on each other for certain things. Like opportunities where, you know, so-and-so's background in X or so-and-so's writing about Y or really, you know, great insight about Z, um, that they get credit for that. And people begin to acknowledge them as someone that, you know, they can look to or lean on for those contributions. And the students take pride in that. And then they kind of come into that leadership role. And so try to have assignments and conversations where different people's strengths become apparent. And then they come to feel valued for those and rely on each other for those so it doesn't all go through the instructor. I mean, that's, that's the biggest thing with, you know, engagement and community and um, conversation is that it can't all just go through one person. You know, if you, if you reply to every student's post yourself to give the definitive take on what they said, then they're not going to do that. Um, and so I would say, don't be so anxious that you have to prove you're checking your thing 50 times a day by replying to every single person. You're going to completely take over the discussion and students aren't going to, you know, have an opportunity to assert themselves and respond, to congratulate each other, to question each other, to make suggestions. So that can very much happen online if you have an environment and though that kind of engagement is valued in more than just a general like your participation grade. I mean, I have students do a lot of reflection on the kind of community building or the kind of deliberation or the kind of conversation that they're contributing to the class. So that like for example in a class where you have informal posts I then have built into the process where they're reflecting, like in my summer courses in particular, they might post four days in a row, and those posts are not just, here's my whole take on this or that reading or material or whatever, but they're actually like posing questions or offering ideas. Then, it, then the, the fifth day I reserve for them to write a post 
that's just for me that's reflecting on what they think their best post of the week was and why? And did it generate reactions from other people? Why or why not? What are their goals for their, you know, post the following week? You know, like they'll, they'll do that part way through and they'll go, huh, so-and-so, you know, shared a meme that was about a thing that our class is on and it was controversial. And then people all responded to that. I want to do something like that next week, except I want mine to be about gender roles or whatever it is, you know. So providing those opportunities for them to think about the quality of their own community building or conversation or contributions and then opportunities to improve on them. So I always reserve the last 15 minutes of every seminar that I teach face-to-face in the classroom where we all reflect on what did we like about that discussion Um, what are the topics that didn't come up that you really hope come up next time? And what are your goals for next time? And then, you know, I have students who lead discussion. You can also have students leading discussion online and you can build in that reflective component, except it's even better because they don't, it doesn't have to occur to them during the last 15 minutes of class for those who, you know, were hungry or overwhelmed or didn't feel comfortable speaking up. They can think of it later and say, you know, here's what I really liked about the discussion board this week. Here's what I wish or thought we were gonna talk about or write about or think about together and it didn't happen. So, you know, I hope someone or maybe me will bring that up next week, you know, so you can build in that reflection component for online and it will advantage those students who aren't the ones who are going to speak up during that live face-to-face classroom reflection. Joan, thank you so much for joining us on an early episode of our CTE podcast. We really appreciate hearing your wisdom. Thanks. It was a joy to participate. This episode was produced by the Tracy Seeley Center for Teaching Excellence at the University of San Francisco. The CTE is co-directed by Marilyn Delore and Eugene Kim. Our program assistant is Nisha Jaster. Thanks for listening.